We'll begin this evening's talk with three Pali words, sila, samadhi, panya. These three Pali words translated into English as virtue or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom, insight. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many, many times about these particular aspects of mind as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom, insight. These three form the branches, the three branches of mental development that are essential to all Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities of mind and heart, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana the deeply penetrative understanding that comes through the direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights. That of anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena. That of dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences. And Anatta, the impersonality of all the material and mental phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one on to the final liberating insights. In the Buddha's words, as he often did, he starts with a question and then he goes on to answer his own question. So here, here's one of his questions and the answer to it that he gives. If concentration, samadhi or samatha, is developed, what profit does it bring? And he responds to his question. He says, the mind is developed. And he goes on with another question. If the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? And his response to his own question is, all lust is abandoned. And then he asks another question, if insight is developed, excuse me, <clears throat> if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? And he says, wisdom is developed. If wisdom is developed, he goes on, what profit does it bring? And his response is, all ignorance is abandoned. And so concentration, samatha or samadhi meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation, in particular alternating sequences, are developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes through the practice, the process and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and practices of sila or virtue as these practices deepen and as they mature within us, we come to understand through our own very direct experience what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on the deepest level, and what brings suffering, confusion, 
what brings dis-ease. Very intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us are our habits of attraction, which are greed, clinging, attachment, and our habits of aversion, such as worry, resistance, anger, fear, and the identification with these states. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this very here and now momentary round of worldly suffering, which in Pali is called samsara. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration. And these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and thus keeping us from awakening, keeping us from the liberation of the heart, the liberation of the mind. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is simply, basically, I'm saying it in a simple way, uh, is the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, galaxies, Colorado, California, Iraq, dogs, Santa Fe, Taos, British Columbia, (laughs) thoughts, feelings, snow, rain, New York, one's aging body, sunshine, your favorite restaurant, the Amtrak train system, etc., 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 are understood, are regarded as being without substantial, sustaining essence. Being without any separate, solid self-identity. In order to see and know the true nature of things, of existing phenomena, We need to purify the mental cloudiness. We need to part the veil, so to say, untangle the tangle. That keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs via the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, all of which must be rooted in mindfulness. In speaking to Ananda in the Kimata Sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha again, he asks a question, and again he proceeds to answer it. He says, what is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? Skillful virtues, and this is his response to his questions, to his question. Skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose. And Ananda, he says to Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose, concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step 
by step to the consummation of arahantship, to the liberation from suffering, to the end of suffering. And in speaking to his sangha, his monks and nuns, very directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said this, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, insight, that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom. Just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience, and often from some of our more difficult experiences, or maybe also from what we might deem to be our mistakes as well as learning from our quieter and pleasant and beautiful and very subtle experiences. So we could say that purification is synonymous with this act of learning. And so this evening taking a look at the active force of samadhi, the active force of concentration, the unperturbed peaceful and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and process of strong mental concentration. This process of gathering in, gathering together the energy, the potential powerful energy of the mind which is ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reigning in the mind from all of its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the simple present so that our mental and physical energy isn't being used up or being usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The notion of developing the mind really lies at the heart of all Buddhist traditions. And one very important aspect of this development has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus, one's ability to stabilize and to direct the mind, rather than allowing it to be carried off over and over and over again by whatever breezes we could say waft through or waft in in upon it uh, from any of the sense doors or from its own unconscious. So in light of this we can ask ourselves a question. Does my mind control me? Or do I control my mind? So, for instance, if your intention, the simple, uh, a simple for instance, if your intention is to keep the attention on the breath, but the mind wanders off at the very slightest provocation, then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. One of the wonderful things that practice offers us is that remaining focused on a particular chosen object is a skill that can be learned. And like any other skill, it can be learned by practice, patient repetition, and gradual development. The Visuddhimagga, 
the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification uses a number of very uh, graphic metaphors to describe the process of the development and the act of concentration. So I'd like to share a couple of these with you. In the first one, the bee follows up the scent of a flower and then dives towards the flower, aiming the attention. First stopping and buzzing above it, so sustaining the attention. Buzzing above it, getting to know it, before really diving into it, before absorbing into it. So a metaphor from the Visuddhimagga on preliminary access and absorption concentration. Another metaphor that's offered in the Visuddhimagga that I uh, particularly relate to because of my own experience in making pottery is this. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel, centering the clay. The potter puts both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong, relaxed, focused attention. A strong, relaxed, focused attention of body and mind. Staying, sustaining attention, sustaining energy. Totally undistracted as the clay is centered upon the wheel. Then the potter with a continued focus of attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which is the object of attention. The clay is the object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay. At the same time, as being informed by it. And a bowl is formed. So really, if any of you have ever tried to make a pot on a potter's wheel, this is really quite a graphic and very visceral metaphor for the development and process of concentration. It's also a literal experience when you're working on a potter's wheel. with the heart, the mind, moving into deeper states of samadhi. And in practice, possibly into jhana states. The power of a clear, relaxed, focused mind. A concentrated mind. It brings together and stimulates or re-stimulates itself again and again. It re-stimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is. Pure, calm, and clear. And it's quite an energizing, refreshing, and often beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and uh, potentially beautiful current of samadhi, the current of concentration, I think it would be helpful for us to begin exploring and just learning a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, peace, equanimity, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana. They cannot grow when the unwholesome states of mind, of attachment, 
aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential, really essential, for the development and blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So, for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, such as the sensations of the in and out breath at the anapana spot, at the touching point, or the rising and falling of the breath in the belly, and you're anxious or you're worried in some way during the process, calm and joy will be prevented from arising simply because worry, if we take it up, enslaves us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought, or maybe more accurately, to not be seduced by thoughts. One needs to be willing to cut through thought, so to say. Even thoughts that might seem so important in the moment. And I think it's very important to note here that it's not about kicking out thoughts. Booting out thoughts is rooted, very much rooted, in an attitude of aversion. What's meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention. A clarity of intention and seeing and knowing when the attention gets muddled or gets lost in something other than what is intended. And this is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step in the practice of developing concentration. Because as we all know, the mind can get lost in myriad, mundane, and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions. Thinking that whatever it is, is really very important. During a three-month concentration uh, jhana retreat that I sat uh, with uh, the Venerable Pollock Sayadaw, I had such an experience. For the first week or so of the retreat, each day after lunch, I would make myself a, a, a fancy cup of tea. <laughs> so I would take two or three loose teas, uh, mixing them together in a tea ball uh, for my fancy cup of tea. It seemed a very important and uh, necessary treat that I needed, that I wanted. And after about a week of doing this, I noticed that there was a box of tea bags uh, of one of the very same teas that I was putting into my fancy tea mix, and it was sitting on the counter right in front of me under the jars of loose teas. And it had been sitting there every single day, but the mind had not connected with it. I hadn't seen it really. There wasn't a clear attention, attention up until that very moment. So the thought came when I noticed that box of tea, box of tea bags, do I really need this? Is all this fancy tea uh, preparation and seeming need, is it really important? And the answer came quite quickly, no, it's not important. It's not at all important, it's merely a habitual distraction. So that day I made a cup of tea with the tea bag, one of the, t- the tea bag that was right in front of me. And it was uh, very enjoyable, very nice. What happened after this was what really import- was what was really important, though. Quite spontaneously, at times, throughout the rest of this three-month retreat, the question would come up: Is this really important? 
and it would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and various thought patterns. And the answer that came was almost always, if not pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, no. And so I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. And it continued, actually, for many months, and actually still continues from that retreat. It's very helpful. (laughs) It's quite spontaneous. It's a good... There's a good teacher going on somewhere in there. (laughs) For me. (laughs) The development of a wholesome concentration requires that we have insight to some depth, actually, and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And that can be very subtle. It's a a deep learning and a long time learning. One of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs uh, through this process of developing concentration is that the mind and the heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, doubt. Classically, the development of concentration and jhana is described as the purification of the mind. And as I said at the beginning of this evening's talk, the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Samatha, or samadhi, or the development of calm and concentration, seriously weakens all of the hindrances. It really considerably weakens all of the unwholesome states of mind. When calm, joy, tranquility, blissful happiness, peace, and equanimity, the fruits of concentration practice, when these clearly manifest, the hindrances, these unwholesome mind states are temporarily completely eliminated, as well as profoundly weakened in the long term particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. And even more specifically so, if one has the inclination towards attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana. So, taking a bit of a look now at how the different factors of deep concentration quite specifically address the different states of mind and body that hinder the development of concentration and that also hinder the unfolding of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is obviously an antidote to feeling perturbed. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and various inner obstacles, giving the mind a much greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the attention, initially applying the mind, aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object. And the word for this in Pali is vitaka. The establishment of the mind on the object, such as the sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath at the anapanaspat or the touching point, or the sensations of the rising and falling of the breath in the belly. This eliminates dullness, sleepiness, and stiffness. The sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustained attention, 
on the object. In Pali, the word for this process is vichara. This eliminates uncertainty. It eliminates doubt. The deeply concentrated state of joyful zest or bright happiness or elation in the mind resulting from the developing purity of mind and heart. And the word for this in Pali is piti. This brings a very delighted interest, a delighted interest in and liking for the object of attention, for instance, such as the breath, as concentration develops and deepens. With the first and second jhana in a very deeply absorbed state of concentration, there's much delight and liking of the object of attention, which is one aspect of the direct experience of jhana itself. And at this point, all forms of ill will are temporarily completely inhibited. And the deeply concentrated state of bliss or contentment, a kind of sweet, easeful happiness. And the word for this experience in Pali is sukha, which in its maturity, it is not a pleasant physical feeling and not a pleasant bodily feeling, but a very blissful, contented mental feeling. And when this occurs to varying degrees with deepening concentration, and then much more profoundly in the third jhana, restlessness, agitation, and regret or worry are completely, temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady undistracted attention of a one-pointed focus of deep concentration, and the Pali word for this is ikagata. Again, occurring to varying degrees during the whole breadth of the development stages of deepening concentration, and then happening in a much more profound and sustaining way during absorption in the fourth jhana. This is the experience of absolute centeredness, balance, the experience of equanimity. And at that point, completely eliminating, temporarily, sensuous desire for anything during that time. As concentration develops and moves along, and the imperfections, the states that corrupt the natural purity of the heart, the natural purity of the mind, when at least some of these imperfections have been very clearly let go of and temporarily abandoned or relinquished. At that time, one really truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. And when this confidence arises, the mind and heart often experience great inspiration and enthusiasm and a great appreciation connected to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and also to one's own particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and to know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. And with the blossoming and maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and a taste of elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it, without any attachment, without any personal identification in those moments, 
the body and mind eventually becomes very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy, these are removed. They disappear in the calm and the quiet. They disappear with this serene pleasure of tranquility. When we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt without any attachment, without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deepened concentration. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind which opens the heart to a wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the serene pleasure of tranquility, which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on and on it goes. So in this light, the skill that has been developed is one's ability to resist or deflect the influence of what in Pali is called raga, which literally translates as unwholesome passion and is most often used synonymously with desire, craving, attachment, clinging. And so, consequently, is thus the core of dukkha, the core of suffering the cause core, the cause of dukkha and suffering. At the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used uh, uh, regarding this aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and protect the contents of the house from getting soaked with the analogy being that the well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought, an unwholesome emotion that has arisen, or a provocative sense input, and will allow these to just simply roll off the mind, so to say, and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging. A similar image often used was that of water rolling off a lotus leaf or rolling off the feathers of a duck. And so at this point, the mind and the heart are very strong. The nature of concentration is threefold, or in other words, there are three types or three levels of concentration that uh, can develop and serve our insight practice. The first of these is called momentary concentration, and this is the development and the growing maturity of one's ability to focus on one object after another the development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another object, one by one and ongoing, moment by moment. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice. The second type or level of concentration is called access concentration. And this is a very deep and very powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or just before one moves into jhana concentration. And it can be re-accessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of jhana. Access concentration is often experienced as similar in its intensity and its depth Uh, to jhana concentration, 
but it's not. It's not an absorbed concentration. It doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana concentration. With excess concentration, the mind is very malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object, even though it contains close to the same intensity of deeply absorbed jhana states. So from this perspective, access concentration can be really very helpful and useful in the unfolding of vipassana practice, the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. And as I've already mentioned, during that time the mind, the heart, is temporarily totally purified from all unwholesome states of mind. While at the same time, unwholesome states of mind and body are profoundly weakened in the long run, though they're not totally and finally eliminated. It's only through vipassana, it's only through insight practice that unwholesome or afflictive states of mind are totally eliminated. The development of concentration quite naturally takes place in our vipassana practice, particularly momentary concentration, especially when we begin to be able to meet the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, attachment, and identification, self-identification. The development of jhana and excess concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort. And this isn't everyone's inclination or interest. And it's not absolutely necessary for a profound and potentially liberating vipassana or liberating insight practice to unfold. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet, to wholeheartedly absorb into experience with no self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being clearly present and mindfully aware of just what's taking place, but with no pondering, no commentary, no thinking about what's occurring. In light of this, I'd like to share a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about uh, two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices and finding that in fact they weren't bringing him the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it's said that the bodhisattva, and the word bodhisattva, just for a moment explain, bodhi means awakening or enlightenment, and sattva is a being dedicated to or having the strong intention to bodhi the strong intention to awaken. (coughs) It said that the Bodhisattva Siddhartha Gautama asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? So in reflection with this inner questioning, 
an image, um, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival. Losing my voice. (coughs) Excuse me. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival. It was a time each year when the men of the community, both the rich men and the poor alike, would come together for a day of plowing up the earth. It was an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. And this young boy, six-year-old boy, Siddhartha, quite spontaneously um, and naturally sat up in the meditation posture um, as he was quietly sitting under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree. And he was observing the scene that was unfolding before him with a very open, very alert, and unfettered attention. That kind of attention that children sometimes give to things. There was really nothing much on his mind. In those moments of not wanting or fearing anything, young Siddhartha was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of the sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and the cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they were working. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and they pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs and the worms and the broken bodies left out on the upturned, broken bodies of the mice that were left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat there alone under the apple tree, clearly focused and very deeply relaxed, open-heartedly experiencing this scene going on before him, and in his heart feeling no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away, no picking, no choosing. as he silently sat quite still and secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, and taking all of this in without prejudice and without attachment, finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a deep state of concentration, the first jhana through mindfulness of breathing and experienced a bright, sweet pleasure and happiness that was not born out of desire for, not born out of clinging to anything. 
And that morning, in his young mind, a very deep, intuitive understanding was seated. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of body and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha. Could this be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following up on this memory from his childhood, the bodhisattva became very filled with energy and assurance that in fact this was a footstep on the path to liberation. And so he resolved to sit quietly and press forward in a deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening. This was really a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and in his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind, wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified or banished, released or let go of or relinquished by creating hardship for oneself and then putting up with them, so to say, or living through them or kind of toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships or perhaps by struggling or by trying to let go, trying very hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme austere practices or by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life, how many times in small and even tiny ways or possibly even in extreme ways have you out of ignorance out of delusion out of misunderstanding been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies various situations various activities relationships that created hardship or a certain flavor of austerity in your life and maybe even extreme hardship or austerity in your own way doing just what the Buddha did and thinking just as he did that it would somehow bring a sustaining joy a sustaining happiness and a sustaining ease into your life potentially a certain kind of strength might be gained but the light at the end of the tunnel so to say the light of liberation can never be seen felt or known with this way as a young man remembering his childhood experience Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities that this would never really bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, with a mind, a heart that's secluded, that's free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed, clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion or doubt he understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion clear concentrated presence and detachment that it's not only okay 
but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path to liberation. And that it, in fact, points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, a mind that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That, in fact, it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, a mind that is liberated, a heart, a mind that's awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisattva came to understand that the development of a deep concentration, and for the Buddha, for, or he wasn't a Buddha yet, but for him, uh, Jhana, was a step on the way to awakening. An important and useful step on the way to liberation. As the Buddha expressed it in the Majjhima Nikaya, in his greater discourse to Sakaka, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? And he goes on, I thought I'm not afraid, I thought I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme austerities. And that very soon after this he was offered some solid food by a young village girl and regained his strength. And then went and sat in meditation under a Bodhi tree. And he goes on speaking with Sakaka saying that being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first, the second, the third, and the fourth jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, in the Buddha's words, these are the Buddha's words now, but such a pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning equanimity. He tells Sakaka that he then systematically attained each of the liberating liberating insight knowledges one by one through that very famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed mind is something that young Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing and coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, nothing to push away or run from. And yet this natural state of an undisturbed mind, it isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We so often have a mind made up. Often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be, how it isn't supposed to be. What's good, what's bad. What we definitely know is true, what we definitely know isn't true. And we also often have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up, a mind that in fact clings quite tightly to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment we're in. And it keeps us in conflict, keeps us shut off from the vastness of possibility, keeps us shut off from the possibility 
of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, what prevents the mind from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. As I mentioned earlier in the talk this evening, the teachings and the practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of virtue. The current of samadhi, the teaching and practice of concentration. And the current of vipassana, the teaching and practice of insight, of wisdom. These three currents are what carry the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of this life. They carry us to the other side, to the side of peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living within the natural state of an undisturbed heart and mind. The current of samadhi, the development of concentration, possibly maybe including states of deeply absorbed concentration, jhana. They are beautiful and potentially healing and powerful states in and of themselves. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle, that keeps us from seeing it, so that we really recognize, truly recognize the nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. And so as awakening beings, here we are, right here now, today, more than 2,500 years later after the story uh, that I've just shared took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama, his diligent and uh, very powerful six years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and amazing gift and clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, patience, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with deep kindness and patience. These wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya, and without a doubt are some of the basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of practice stem from. And I'd like to close the talk this evening <clears throat> uh, with a Mary Oliver poem that uh, speaks to this evening's topic in her quite unique and um, beautiful way. And in relationship to this evening's topic, in a somewhat oblique <laughs> and yet uh, moving way, particularly right now in the midst of this early spring season. And the, she calls this poem, Such Singing in the Wild Branches. 
It was spring, and I finally heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade, with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First, I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened. When I seemed to float, to be myself, a wing or a tree, and then I began to understand what the bird was saying, and the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment, while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what, what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a, sting, not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And yes, of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. 